Yes, the reading is from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of a tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of a day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the, some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe and painful labour you will give uh, and with painful labour, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat, for, eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Good morning. 
Oh, it's fresh, isn't it? Now then, my name's Dave, for anyone who doesn't know me. I want to begin this morning with a question. What do you think is the most common objection to the Christian faith? Now, there are many, and I have heard lots, but I think the one which I hear again and again is how do you reconcile the fact, or how do you say that there is a good, loving God when you look at the world around you? When you look at the world around you, you see brokenness, you see pain, you see disease. Even nature itself feels like it's out to get us with natural disasters, with illness, with COVID-19. How can you reconcile a good, loving God and the mess that we see around us? Well, I think that we have to acknowledge that that is a good question. It's a fair question. So how would you answer? Well, there are a number of very good philosophical arguments which help a lot in answering that question. And you, you could use them, but for me, I'm, I'm not really clever enough to understand them fully. I'm certainly not clever enough to come and explain them to someone else. So instead, this morning, we're gonna ask how the Bible answers that question, how it reconciles a good loving God, and let's face it, a pretty messed up world. We'll be concentrating particularly on Genesis chapter 3. And as we try to understand where it all went wrong, I want to highlight three things to you from our passage. So firstly, it started going wrong when human beings began trusting in true lies. Secondly, the root of all our problems is separation from God. And thirdly, that there is a hint of hope. So how did it all start? Well, in the story of Genesis, we see that a good God begins by creating a good world. Everything was as it should be. There was no death or pain or illness. God created a good world and then he made mankind to enjoy that world and to enjoy a perfect relationship with him. The thing is, he knew that a perfect relationship meant one that wasn't forced upon them. It meant being in a relationship with someone they chose to be with. They chose to obey. So God gave man and woman one rule. Um, he said to them in Genesis chapter two, you are free to enjoy from any tree in the garden. But then he adds in Genesis chapter two, verse 17, you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now the choice was pretty simple. Trust God and obey this one rule and enjoy life in paradise with God or break that rule and choose death. Who on earth would choose option B? Well, let's see where it all goes wrong, shall we? So far in the book of Genesis, there have been three main characters. There's been God, then there's been Adam and then there's been Eve. But in Genesis chapter three, a new character is introduced. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent is spoken of. He's described as more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. Now, if that doesn't arouse your suspicions to the fact that this was no ordinary snake, perhaps the next sentence will. It says this, he said to the woman, the snake talked to the woman. This was a crafty talking snake. Now, we know from the rest of the Bible that the serpent is the devil, is Satan. But at this point in the story, the important thing is not the identity or where he came from. It is what the snake does that we're concentrating on. 
So as we continue in verse one, the snake asks Eve a question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now the serpent knows exactly what he's doing. The snake doesn't come out with a blatant lie. Instead, what he does is he takes a truth and he twists it. He blurs the line between truth and lies and he blurs it so far that those truths become warped. They become lies. What's really interesting about how Eve responds is that she begins to act in a similar way. Initially, in verse two, she puts the serpent straight and we think that's right. He did say you could eat from any tree. But then as she goes on in verse three, she says, you must not eat from any tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it. Now, alarm bells must start ringing for us here. Eve is now adding to the word of God. It seems that the serpent senses that she's beginning to turn because he begins turning up a notch now. In the next verse, he directly contradicts what God said. Verse four, he says, you will certainly not die for God knows when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, tragically, the rest is history, as they say. Eve sees that the fruit looks good and she likes the idea of gaining wisdom. So she takes some and she eats it and she gives some to her husband, Adam. Now, don't miss four key words that are in verse six. Who was with her? Eve was not acting alone. Adam was there as well. In their own ways, in slightly different ways, they were both actively rebelling against the good God. Now, an important question to ask at this point is, what was Adam and Eve's first sin? Now, I know that they've taken fruit and eaten it, which is directly contradicts the one rule that they've been given. But the truth is that at this point, they'd already sinned. Eating the fruit was really just an outworking of what had already taken place in their hearts. They'd already sinned. So what was that sin? What had taken part place in their hearts? Well, here are some of the suggestions. Some would say that they had added to the word of God. Others would say that they didn't challenge someone who questions God's word. And still others say that they wanted to be God. Now, I think all of those are helpful and all true in different ways. But actually, I think it's perhaps helpful to spot something which is behind all those other explanations. The truth is they doubted that God was good. Why did they disobey him? It's because they thought that he didn't have their best interests at heart. They didn't think that he was giving them a rule for their, in, for, the, for their good, but to keep something good from them. The serpent, the serpent knows this and he plays upon it. His attack is on the very character of God. He subtly asks, what kind of God would deny you something which would be good for you? Now, the garden was full of beautiful trees, trees which bore beautiful, delicious fruits. And Adam and Eve were free to eat from almost all of them apart from one. But God said they weren't to eat from one particular tree. So the command comes in two parts. The first part is negative, go and enjoy. And the second part is, but don't eat from this one tree. The thing is that the lie's now been planted and Eve can only now see what is forbidden. Because of this, her view of God becomes negative. She thinks that he is trying to keep something good from her because 
he is not good. Now, the really tragic thing about this lie is that it didn't just seduce our very first parents. Every human ever since then has fallen for that lie as well. Instead of seeing God's rules as being there to increase our enjoyment, we see them as something which is there to inhibit our enjoyment. We see him as some sort of cruel headmaster who is there just to restrict our enjoyment of this world. We're like a small child shouting at our parents, why won't you just let me eat sweets? I don't want vegetables. You must hate me to keep giving me green vegetables all the time, they're disgusting. Now the thing is, as adults, we know that eating sweets is great. But if you eat nothing but sweets, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be unhealthy. Parents don't give vegetables and healthy food to their kids because they don't like them. Quite the opposite. They do it because they love them and they know what's best for them. God is no different. It wasn't, his rule wasn't about inhibiting their enjoyment. It was about increasing their, it was about increasing it. In the first command, God is essentially saying, I want you to love me, not because I need your love, but because I know that when you fix your eyes on something which is infinitely beautiful, you will experience infinite joy. The thing is, you can only really do that if you are willing to obey me, not because you're forced to, but because you want to. If you do that, you will find your love and enjoyment will grow. God's rule was not to keep something from them. It was to help them enjoy life even more. So returning to our opening question, how can we understand the existence of a good, loving God? And let's face it, a pretty messed up world. Well, the first thing we need to understand is that God made the world good. But then mankind decided to replace truth with a lie. We doubted God's goodness and we turned our back upon him. So how does that get us to the mess that we're in today that we see around us every day? Well, that takes us to our second point, the effect of that sin. Now, is it effect or affect? I've written effect. I'm not sure, but we'll see whatever it is. Because because of sin, man was now cut off from the source of all that was good of God himself. You see, a holy God can't be approached by sinful people let's continue reading to see how how this unfolds how that happens if you look at verse seven it says this then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked adam and eve disobeyed because they doubt god's goodness and they decide they want to be like him well they get more than they bargained for sin promises so much and then delivers so little. They want to be like God, but instead they realise that they're nothing like God and that they're naked. They're after glory and all they end up with is shame. It seems all they want to do is cover up both what they've done and how they feel about what they've done. It's like they're acting on blind impulse as they grab the first thing they can find to cover themselves up. But when they hear God coming, all they can do is hide. You see, sin has caused a crippling feeling of shame. And they're afraid to be in God's presence because they know that a holy God can't be with a sinful people. They don't even want to be seen by him. 
This separation from God begins to unravel everything else, including how they behave towards one another. Now, if you go back to the last chapter of Genesis, chapter two, you'll see that when God introduces Eve to Adam, he is so overjoyed with her that he speaks the first ever poem. He says in chapter two, verse 23, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's essentially saying, I love her like I love myself. Or at least that's what he thinks until sin turns up. What does he say after he's been caught sinning? It wasn't me. It was her. Look at verse 12. The woman you put me here with. What happened to bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh? The woman. Can you believe it? What happened? Sin happened. And what happens when Eve's confronted? She does exactly the same thing. It wasn't me. It was the serpent. It's not my fault. Another effect of our sin is that it, once it separates us from God, it separates us from other people and we begin to shift blame. We begin to look for other people to blame, not taking responsibility for what we have done. From verse 14 of chapter three to the end of the chapter, we see that we've only really touched the tip of the iceberg. With shame and separation comes pain, breakdown in relationship. And look at verse 17. Cursed is the ground. Even creation itself has changed. There will be toil and frustration. And most significantly, they can no longer be in the garden, which means death. The effects of sin are profound. Sin caused alienation from God and ruined everything. Now, to understand how this works, it's perhaps helpful to think of creation as a big clockwork mechanism. God's created the world and he set himself as the big cog over all of creation, which turns all the other ones. But then he's created Adam and Eve and he's put them over creation and under God. That's how it was supposed to be. But Adam and Eve decide that's not good enough. We want to be equal or above God. So these two smaller cogs try pulling themselves off their wheel, thinking that they're going to be raised up. But what actually happens is they fall deep down into the mechanism. Now, as the wheels continue to turn, you might think, oh, it's just those two cogs that were affected by that. But actually, as it begins to turn, you hear this awful grinding noise. The noise gets louder and louder and smoke starts coming up from deep inside the machine. As flames start to flicker, the whole machine grinds to a halt. You see, the truth is that in one act of rebellion, all of creation is changed and broken. So let's return to our question yet again. How does the Bible explain a good God and a broken world? Well, the answer is in this chapter. God created a good world and we broke it. We doubted his goodness and replaced truth with lies. We wanted to make ourselves equal to him. And because of that, we were separated from God, the source of all that is good. And it ruined every single aspect of our lives. Nothing is untouched by what happened by sin. Now, you might recall this was supposed to be a talk on a series on hope. It's not really looking that hopeful at the moment, is it? But maybe, maybe we're the answer. Maybe if we broke it, 
we can be the ones who fix it. The thing is, ever since Adam and Eve fell, mankind has been trying to fix it. But if you look around you today, do you think we're any closer to fixing the mess which Adam and Eve started? If you look back over the entire scope of human history, is there anything in there that gives you hope that we are the people who are going to solve this problem? I can tell you that as a former police officer, I have seen humanity at its worst. And I hold out no hope in humanity on its own. We're not able to solve this problem. So on the, on the face of it, things are looking really quite bleak. Adam and Eve sinned, and as a result, they are separated from God. The chapter finishes with a huge angel coming down and blocking their return into the garden. He's got a flaming sword stopping them from returning into the presence of God. It seems like it's hopeless. But if you look a little closer, you'll see there is a hint of hope. The key part of this passage is what God says to the serpent, to Satan, the enemy of God. Now, like Adam and Eve, God created Satan. He made him as one of his angels. But like Adam and Eve, Satan decided, I don't want to obey God. I want his throne for myself. So he rebelled against God. And as a consequence, he was thrown from heaven. Since that time, his hatred for God has only grown and he has made it his life's work to separate God's people from God by replacing truth with lies. Now, Adam and Eve were responsible for their own sin, but it was Satan who orchestrated the circumstances in which they fell. After God has cursed Satan and told him that he will crawl, on the crawl in the dust, he makes it clear that his days are numbered. In verse 15, it says this, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. A descendant of the woman would finally come who would crush the head of Satan. And he would do it at incredible personal cost to himself. In doing so, his heel would be bruised by the snake. In crushing the serpent, this saviour would give hope of redemption to God's people. Note that it doesn't say it will be a descendant of both Adam and Eve. It talks about a descendant of the woman. That's because this is no job for a human descendant. It is a job for someone else. This saviour is going to be born of a woman, but fathered by someone else. It calls for the work of God himself. Who can this be except our Lord Jesus? Who, in the words of Isaiah, was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Who was the son of God and yet was born of a woman. Have you ever wondered why the Bible is so full of so many genealogies? It's because they're trying to trace this bloodline, the bloodline of the one who would finally bring hope to God's people. The rest of the Old Testament is waiting in anticipation of a promised saviour, the great serpent crusher who would finally deliver hope. If you hear one thing this morning, hear this. The only place we can find hope is in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ.
he died on the cross and he bore the curse of sin for his people. And he was raised to life to lead the way from the old broken creation to a new perfect one. But the question's got to be, how can we share in this hope? Well, the short answer is that we must repent of our sins and trust in Jesus. But what does that really mean? Well, the answer is illustrated wonderfully in our passage by clothing. In verse seven, we see the very first result of Adam and Eve's sin is the realization that they are naked and the overwhelming sense of shame. So they sew together fig leaves for themselves to try and cover up. It seems their instinctive reaction when they realize that they've disobeyed God is to try and cover up how they now feel. The truth is that humans have been doing this ever since. Deep down, we know that we are not good enough to stand before a holy God. So we try to cover our shame and we try to cover our sin. Most of us aren't using fig leaves anymore. Instead, we're sewing other things together. It can be done in lots of different ways. Some of us think, if I throw myself into my work, I'll prove that I'm valuable. Or if I'm a good person, maybe I'll be good enough. Or I'll raise a really good family. I'll bring children into this world and give them lots of love. Maybe that will show and cover my shame. Or maybe if we own enough stuff, that will mean we're important. Or maybe even if I go to church, that will make me right. Or if I give money to charity. But the truth is, if we trust in any of those things to try and cover our shame before God, then we're just going to end up doing exactly what Adam and Eve did. The sound of God approaching will be enough to have us running for cover because suddenly we'll be aware that whatever we've tried to use is not good enough. We'll still feel ashamed. So the alternative outfit comes in the end of the chapter. After God has promised a hope of restoration, he replaces their own pitiful attempts at covering their shame with one which will last. He gives clothing for them. But the clothing which God gives is not made from leaves. It is made from an animal skin. It is clothing that will last. It is clothing that required the death of an innocent party. Up until this point in creation, there had been no death whatsoever. So the very first death was a death which was used to cover the shame which Adam and Eve felt. It was a death to point us forward to a death which would cover the shame of God's people. It was to point us forward to the one who would die in our place so that our sins could be paid for. Jesus died and rose again to clothe us in his good works, in his good life. He made us right with God. That's what the Bible calls righteousness. The only way to stand before God unashamed is to wear the clothing which he provides for us, to clothe ourselves in the righteousness which he gives us, not one which we try and provide for ourselves. Now, this is just as true whether you have been a Christian for a day or whether you've been a Christian for your whole life. Every day we have a choice to make when we sin, because sin we will as Christians. Will I try to cover up my sin and shame myself by doing good things, or will I repent of my sin and come to the one who covers it for me? 
accepting the clothing which Jesus graciously gives us, the clothing which is based upon his sacrifice, a clothing which gives us a righteousness and an ability to stand before God unashamed. Now, outwardly, the difference between these two outfits can be really difficult to spot, but inwardly, it makes a world of difference. Instead of begrudgingly obeying because we have to, or because we're trying to earn something, it freezes to respond with a changed heart. It's the obedience God always wanted because it will bring us the deepest joy and the greatest satisfaction. It changes everything. Let me just give you one example of what it might look like. I want you to think of someone in your life who is really difficult to get along with. That might be easier this time of year as we come to Christmas and you might have family coming who is really quite difficult to love. But we try to love them anyway. The question is, what's your motivation for doing it? Is it because you know it's the right thing to do and you're trying to show God that you can obey him? Really, we're just doing it in an attempt to show God that we can obey him and that we're not that bad. When we act out of a sense of duty like that, it means that we can help and love other people. But most of the time, let's be honest, it means we really don't want to. It means that we'll help on our terms. And when we're trying to help someone and they're not grateful, instead of loving them, it will make us bitter towards them. We'll be thinking, can't you see everything I've given up just to make you happy, to serve you? It will make us feel bitter towards them. However, when we realise that first God loved us, that first he gave us what we didn't deserve, he showed us grace. When we realise that he gave up everything for us and that he's not telling us to love and help other people to try and make ourselves right with him, he's doing it because he wants us to reflect the fact that that's what he's done for the entire world, that he stepped down into an ungrateful world and served them. And how did they thank him? By nailing him to a cross. When we see that he loves us despite our sin and our shame, it frees us to love others sacrificially, to help others even when they aren't grateful. Christians are called to love others radically. The only way we can do that is to recognise that we are radically loved. Now, as we've looked at Genesis chapter three this morning, I hope that you've seen that there is a good God who made a good world. And that it was our rejection of God that sent things spiraling into the broken mess which we are surrounded by today. But I hope you've also seen that we have a God who is not giving up on creation. That we may have broken it, but we have a God who is set out to fix it. At a cost that we can't even begin to imagine. If you remember, the great lie of the serpent is that God is not good and that he doesn't want the best for us, that he's trying to pull one over us. But let's finish by looking at one more thing in this passage that shows the very opposite is true. In Genesis 3, we've seen that God rejects man and doubts his goodness. Now, God would have been perfectly just to just shut the whole thing down right there or come into the garden with a sword drawn in judgment against the people who have committed high treason. But what does he do? Look at verse nine. 
But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? God already knows where Adam is. He already knows what Adam and Eve has done. Why is he calling out to them? I've tried to put this quote into my own words. Even though it was written 100 years ago, I've not been able to improve it. So let me read to you what one commentator says about this verse. He says this, this is not the voice of a policeman, but the call of yearning love. God could have consigned Adam and Eve to everlasting chains under darkness. Such would have been no undue severity. It would simply have been bare justice. It was all they deserved. But no, in his infinite condescension and abundant mercy, God designed to be the seeker and came down to Eden crying, where art thou? And God's question to Adam and Eve still sounds in the ear of every sinner, where art thou? It is the call of divine justice which cannot overlook sin. It is the call of divine sorrow which grieves over the sinner. It is the call of divine love which offers redemption from sins. To each and every one of us, the call is reiterated, where art thou? Brothers and sisters, we can trust in the goodness of God because he is the one who seeks the sinner. Even when we try to hide from him, even when we try to cover our sin and our shame ourselves, he is the one who offers to fix a broken world. He is the one who offers hope. My question this morning is, will you heed his call? Will you choose truth and life over lies and death? Will you choose the God who first sought you? Will you choose hope?